couple weeks ago, my family and I went on vacation, but right before we went, the car broke down. So we had to take it in, and we kept calling, and we finally got it back 5.15. The place closed at 5, but we finally got them to keep working on it until it was done at 5.15 the night before we were leaving on vacation. This morning, I got up from a nice, comfortable bed and got up, put on my clothes, and did all those things that we do to get ready to go and help make breakfast with my five-year-old. We're the French toast makers on Sunday mornings and got out the pan and all the things we had to deal with and touch and work to, to cook and get ready to come. Got in my car that has 151,000 miles on it and tried to start it. And it's a little hard starting, but eventually started it and finally got here. And, you know, all those things that we have to deal with in life are things, don't we? We, we live in a physical world. God chose from the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden, to put us in a world of physical things so we have to deal with stuff. And every one of us has to deal with stuff. Most of us go to work every day to make money so that we'll have the money to buy the things we need, food, clothing, shelter, etc. And so we live in a world of stuff. But sometimes we get confused about how to handle stuff don't we? Uh, it's, as Christians, it, it can be frustrating or it can be confusing as to how God wants us to relate to the things that are all around us, the stuff around us. And we get caught up in the world and in desiring things of the world. And as Ray Stedman put it, we have the desire to have things we don't need, bought with money we don't have, in order to impress people we don't like. <laughs> Or a few months ago, I told the story about the uh, little boy who at the birthday party who, as the cake was being brought in, said, I want the biggest piece. I want the biggest piece. And his mom said, Shh, Bobby, you're not s supposed to ask for the biggest piece. And he looked up at her, confused, and said, well, then how do I get it? <laughs> See, we have these desires for things. We find ourselves caught up in wanting things, more things. And we have all these things already to deal with, and it can be confusing. And all of us have experienced the truth that things can be tyrants, can't they? They take our time, our energy, they demand our service, our plans, our thoughts, our work. The question for us this morning is how should we view things, possessions, our wealth? which includes money and the things we have. How should we view them? How should we respond to them? Last week, Chris preached on the prodigal son, as Dee mentioned, and the prodigal son's a wonderful story about how God wants us. Even in the midst of our sinfulness and our rejection of him, he wants us to come home, and he'll welcome us with open arms. Well, he goes on, Jesus, in this next passage, to tell another parable to describe one of the things that can be one of the biggest dividers of our relationship with him, one of the biggest distractions that can keep us from drawing close to him. It was interesting that Jeremy Waringa said one of the things he learned was how things can be such a distraction to us. That's exactly the point of the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. 
as we look at what Jesus tells us about how to view our possessions, our wealth. The parable is often called the parable of the unjust steward or the parable of the unrighteous steward, perhaps. It's a confusing parable, really. A difficult one, very difficult, and I'm not sure I understand all of it. But we'll look at it, and I think there's some marvelous principles here. When I was an undergrad at Stanford University, I took a class in the religion department called Jesus and the Gospels, and I thought, great, this will be my chance to find out more about the Word. And, And in that class, it was taught by a very liberal scholar. And his assumption was that most of the New Testament was not authentic. Most of what was attributed to Jesus was not really his words. It was added later by the church or thrown in by the Jews. But one passage, they always said, yeah, this was probably authentic because nobody understands it, is this parable right here. So uh, that's what we're tackling this morning. But I really think there's marvelous principles here that will cause us to evaluate how we deal with things that we all have to deal with every day. Let me read the first eight verses of chapter 16 of Luke. Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the stewardship away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, others will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And then verse 8, listen to this. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly or thoughtfully, wisely. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So that's the parable. A rich landowner, he has a steward that's been ripping him off, apparently, or at least just squandering his possessions, wasting is the idea of scattering So he just hasn't been a good steward at all. He's been losing money. The owner calls him in and says, You're out of here, buddy. You're fired. You're history. So I want the books. Turn them over to me. And before he turns over the books, the steward says, Man, what am I going to do? I'm going to be out of a job. I know what I'll do. I'll have all my master's debtors come in and I'll change their bills so that they'll like me. They'll, They'll welcome me into their homes after I'm out of a job. So he does that quickly before he has to turn over the books. And what's shocking about this, and Jesus loves to do this in the parables, he loves to put a twist in that catches you off guard and you say, wait a minute, what in the world is going on? It makes you think. It makes you wrestle with the text more. And in verse 8 he says, his master praised the unrighteous steward. Now you need to understand something here. It says when he changed the bills... As near as I can figure, and and what scholars have decided, is that each of those bills that he changed, just these two, and 
we get the sense that there's other debtors. We're only given two. Each of these two, these were tremendous bills. Each one of them cost the landowner $50,000 approximately in today's wages. So you're looking at $100,000 that the wealthy landowner lost because of what the steward did. So that makes it that much more powerful. These are huge amounts of money. And he praises the steward. It's not what we would expect at all. You would expect him to say, you just cost me $100,000 and I'm throwing you in jail and I'm going to take everything you have until you pay me back. He doesn't. He says, wow, smart move. <laughs> Good job. And what's shocking about that, I think, is see... Most of us would not respond that way, would we? What's shocking is that the wealthy landowner cared more about thoughtfulness, shrewdness, being wise, than he did about losing $100,000. That's what's shocking, isn't it? See, because we wouldn't respond that way. We would be upset, most of us, about losing the money. And that sets the stage for everything else that Jesus wants to say because his point is, yeah, that's what I want you to be. That's how I want you to live. Is not so concerned about money and possessions, but far more concerned about living wisely in your life than you are about hoarding the things that you have. So in verse 9, he goes on to give... An application, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, uh, just a comment at the end of verse 8, uh, where it says, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Apparently, what Jesus is saying there, and I'm not sure I understand this fully, but apparently, what he's saying is that unbelievers are more shrewd than believers are. Believers often are more likely to be foolish in their use of things than unbelievers are. What does he mean by that? What, what's his point? Well, I think he's saying that unbelievers tend to be more intentional. They'll use things to manipulate other people. You see, they use things to get something from others. But as Christians, we know we shouldn't, shouldn't manipulate, and so we're confused. We kind of stand back and... And we have things, but we aren't sure how to relate to them a lot of times. Um, so we get confused. I like the way Eugene Peterson put it in his uh, translation, the message. He says, now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They're constantly on alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what's right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. In other words, he wants us to be wise with how we use things, to be thoughtful, to be shrewd, to see what we have as useful for the kingdom, to have a purpose for how we use things. So in verse 9, he gives us the application. Use what you have, he says, to make friends. Or in other words, to 
to love others. To share the love of Christ with others. In other words, everything you have has been given to you as a tool to reach out and share the love of Christ with. It's not something to be hoarded. It's not for yourself to make yourself feel good or comfortable. Can we enjoy things? Sure, enjoy them. But use them to reach out and love to others is his point. That's the principle. That's what they're for. And notice what he says in verse 9. He says, they're the mammon of unrighteousness. Why does he call things unrighteous? I don't think things are unrighteous in themselves. God created the universe to be enjoyed. He created things. But, he says, he calls them unrighteous, I think, because we tend to use them unrighteously. We tend to use them selfishly for our own ends to get what we want. And notice what he says. He says, when they fail or when it, mammon, fails, they'll receive you into eternal blessings. Things will fail, don't they? They don't last. As you may have heard or noticed, there's no luggage racks on a hearse. You know, when you're gone, everything stays here except you. My sister has gone to the Tombs of China exhibit in Portland. All these marvelous things that were put in these tombs of the emperors of of China. But you know what? All that stuff stayed there. It didn't go with them when they died. You see, we don't take anything with us and things will fail us. Jeannie and I just celebrated our 16th anniversary this summer. And I just happened to look around and be thinking, as I looked around the kitchen, about all those wonderful, shiny, new, marvelous gifts we got when we got married. They're almost all gone. You know, the three or four toasters we got and the three or four ice cream makers and the 40 or 50 mugs we got pretty much are all broken, all gone. You know, things break down. They will fail us. They don't last. And it's a reminder here. He says, when they fail, if you've used what you have to love others, then you'll be truly blessed. Be shrewd. Use what you have to love others. A good example of someone who did that is the great preacher in England in the 1700s, John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement many years ago. And when he was making 18 pounds a year, of course, this is English money, um, English pounds. When he was making 18 pounds a year, he could barely live off that. When he began making 30 pounds a year, it was enough to live and, you know, live okay, live comfortably. When he began making 60 pounds a year, he lived off 30 and gave 30 away. When he made 150 pounds a year, he lived off 30, gave 120 pounds away. And as his income continued to increase, he continued to live off the same amount because he had a commitment to give as much as he could away. In fact, he said, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. John Calvin, the great reformer, put it this way. If we believe heaven is really our country, it's better to put our possessions there than to keep them here where upon our sudden death they'll be lost. But how do we put them in heaven? Well, surely it's by providing for the needs of the poor. Whatever is given to the poor, the Lord reckons is given to himself. Matthew 25, 40. From this comes the notable promise... He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 19:17. 
For what's devoted to our brothers out of a duty of love is deposited in the very hands of the Lord himself. You see, that's a way in which we can love others and deposit what we have in a heavenly bank, so to speak. Let me say one thing. When we talk about money, it's easy for people to begin to say, okay, here it comes. It's an appeal for us to give more to the church. They're calling for more tithing, more money. That's not at all it. In fact, you know, we, we rely on the Lord. He's the one who takes care of us. And He uses you, and that's wonderful, but He's in charge. But I think what Jesus is getting at is He wants us to see not just part of what we have, 10% or 5%, whatever you tithe or whatever, is the Lord's, and then everything else is mine to use any way I want to. No, He wants us to see everything we have as His. Everything we have to be used to love others. Part of it is we have to have our needs met, and that's why things are given to us, and they can be enjoyed and and all. But ultimately, things are just tools to love our families and to love others around us. That's all they are, is just tools. I know some very wealthy people who are very generous and have used what they have to bless my life and to bless many other people's lives. I know some very poor people whom I have been very richly blessed by. Probably what stands out more than any in my mind is when I had the opportunity to go on a missions trip to Pakistan and I was walking through this uh, uh, missionary compound and this Pakistani man said, come with me, come, come. And he took me into his home and it was a little one-room stone house. He had seven children. And they're all gathered around in this tiny little place. They had almost nothing. And he heated up this little pot of tea and sent his oldest daughter out. She came back in a few moments with a little package of cookies so I could have cookies to go with my tea. I know that that little package cost a huge amount to that little family. But he simply wanted to share the love of Christ with me. It's a wonderful thing. And that's what Jesus wants of us, is to have an attitude of how can I share what I have with others? How can I share the love of Christ with others through what I have? So Jesus is saying, use what you have to love others. As one commentator put it, do we use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive us? Or... Will there be numbers who will point accusing fingers at us because we neglected or injured them through our unfaithful, and I might add selfish, conduct in connection with the earthly goods entrusted to us? So the principle, use what you have to love others. That's what it's for. Now Jesus goes on in the next few verses to give another purpose of things. He says things are a way to evaluate your faithfulness to me. Did you know that? How you use the things you have are a way of evaluating your ultimate faithfulness to God. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous 
also in much. Gives a general principle. There's something consistent about us that how we use little things is really a reflection of how we use big things. How you handle little things reveals your level of faithfulness overall. We tend to think the little things really don't matter, right? This little decision, this little, you know, this, gosh, I got overpaid $5 by the cashier at the store. You know, it's her mistake. It's no big deal. It's, it's a little thing. We look at little things and we say, ha, ah, it's no big deal, you know. But yeah, the big things, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'll be a missionary for you or I'll go to church. I'll, you know, I'll, the big things, I'll follow you. But on the little things, they don't matter. Well, Jesus is saying, wrong. He says the little things, they are little. But they really reveal your faithfulness to God. It's like the Olympic athletes that we saw do such wonderful things a few weeks ago. What made them successful? Was it those few seconds of glory as Michael Johnson crosses the finish line or Carl Lewis makes one leap into the pit and wins the gold medal or whatever? No, that's not success. That's not how they got where they, were, where they ended up. It was those weeks and months and years of going out in the drizzling rain and running laps and pushing their bodies and dealing with diets and all the mundane things that it takes to be faithful in the big things. They had to be faithful in the little things to reach such a level of success. And it's true for us. It's the little things that are so important. He goes on to just expand on this in verse 11 where he says, If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, which is a little thing, Okay, money, possessions are little things in the parallel here. If you haven't been faithful in the little things, money, who will entrust the true things to you? The true things, I think what Jesus is talking about is, is spiritual resources, giftedness, your usefulness to God. He said, if you're not faithful in how you handle money in, in the little things, then you will compromise on your usefulness to God. You won't get the bigger resources, the spiritual resources that are really important that will allow you to have an impact for the Lord. So when we make little choices to say, well, you know, this, this may not be quite right on how I'm looking at my taxes. I might be compromising a little bit, but it's a little thing. Besides, the government rips us off anyway, and we... You know, we justify, we rationalize. When we keep money that's been overpaid to us, when we decide, well, I know I probably shouldn't spend this money on this toy, but doggone it, I've been working hard and I deserve it, and so I'm going to go ahead and get this for myself. I was at the store yesterday, and it was really interesting to me. There was a gal in front of me returning something that cost a couple hundred dollars, and and the gal said, why are you returning it, the checker? And she said, uh, well, my husband won't let me have it. And then she kind of mumbled, but he sure is willing to spend money on his toys. <laughs> and uh, we get in this attitude of, we, I deserve this. I can have it for myself. Maybe not someone else, but I can have it. 
I was told this morning a story about Howard Hendricks, who went into a restaurant and, and paid the check, and the waitress brought back $20 too much. And he immediately said, oh, you overpaid me. Here's the 20 back. And she looked at him, and she was shocked, and she said, you gave it back. I mean, most people wouldn't give it back. How did you decide to do that? And he said, lady, I made that decision years ago. You see, he had decided a long time before that he would be faithful in the little things. And so it was easy. And I think Jesus is saying, will you do that? Will you make a decision to be faithful in these little things, the possessions, the money we have? They're little things. But be faithful in them so you can receive true resources. And verse 12 even takes it deeper. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He says everything you have, your possessions, aren't yours anyway. You're born into life. You're loaned some things for a while while you're here, and you aren't going to take them with you. They're not really yours. They're the Lord's. And he says, use them wisely. You're just a steward. They're not really yours. And he ends this by saying, that which is your own, I think your own, what, what is really ours in life? I think in the context, what Jesus is talking about is character. He says, if you're not faithful in your use of money in the things that have been loaned to you, then you're going to miss out on the deeper integrity and the deeper character that will be all you have left when you go be with the Lord in heaven. Is your character. The righteousness that God has built into you as you've chosen to be faithful in little things. These are tough principles, and I'm convicted. And I hope we all are in some sense, because Jesus wants so much to have a relationship with you that has no distractions, nothing between you and him. That's why he says this. He says, oh, I want your heart for my own. I want you to know the freedom of a love relationship with me. And things can so easily get in the way if you let them. That's why he goes on to verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and things, God and possessions. A principle you've heard before, but it is so true. He's saying things are enslaving. And if you let them, they will control you. They demand your allegiance. But so does God. And if you try to serve things and make them your master then you will find yourself utterly frustrated because you cannot, he says, Jesus says here, it's impossible, you cannot serve both God and things. You can't do it. He draws a picture here of a slave walking down the street. I'm a, you know, a slave. And he hears one master saying one thing and another master saying another, and he's got to choose. He's got to make a choice at that particular moment at, when he makes a decision to follow one or the other. And he says, if you follow money, you will end up hating God. You'll despise God. You can't serve two masters because they're both making demands and they're in conflict. And therefore, you'll be frustrated when you, uh, when you try to serve them both. 
How does this work out practically as Christians? Well, I think I see it in my own life when I have those times of God taking something away from me and I get angry at Him. God, what are you doing? This isn't fair. You know, I early in my Christian life, I was so convinced that real godly people were those who didn't have very much. You know, the less you had, the more godly you were. That's not true at all. But that's how I was living. And I worried about every dollar. And then my car blew a head gasket and there went seven, eight hundred dollars. I'm going, God, what are you doing here? This doesn't make sense. Why? Because I was serving things. I didn't have much, but you don't have to have much to be serving things. It's probably easier to serve things if you have a lot, but it's easy for all of us to serve things. So he says, don't do that. The things you have will be enslaving if you aren't careful. So make sure you're serving God and not the things you have. I have a pastor friend who early in his ministry made an inner vow that he shared with another pastor friend and he said, my goal is to be rich. And as he's lived over the years, he's kept that goal. And I have watched him compromise on more and more things in his life. He has a neat little sports car, but he doesn't want his congregation to know, so he hides it in a storage unit and only goes down and drives it when he knows no one will know. He's acquiring more and more real estate and various things, but again, he would never tell anybody because he's got to hide it and he's compromising in his ministry and he's losing effectiveness in his ministry because he's chosen to serve things rather than God. Now, most of us would never be that blatant. Some of us may have been. But he's saying, Jesus is saying, make a choice to serve me and not things. And just to hammer the point home in the next five verses, Jesus turns to the Pharisees who were listening. He's teaching the disciples, but they were obviously listening. And he uses them as an example of those that this is what will happen to you if you choose to serve things rather than the Lord. Let me read 14 through 18. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. Notice the verse before said, if you love one master, you will hate the other. They're, they're standing before God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, who is teaching. And because they're lovers of money, they're mocking him. They're hating him. They're despising him, what he's saying. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The word detestable there is a word that means nauseating. Like when you smell something and it just makes you sick. He said, The things that men esteem and they exalt are nauseating to God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. 
He says a new age has come. We're preaching the gospel. And people are running at the gates. They're so anxious to get in. Except for you Pharisees. <laughs> but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Why does he end with this verse on marriage and divorce? Well, I think what he's saying here is he's saying, you Pharisees, because you love money, you've chosen to turn your back on God and begin to walk away from him. And what happens is a degeneration in your relationship with God. It begins to take you down that slippery slope when you choose. And for the Pharisees, they begin to mock God. The Son of God is there and they turn their back on Him. And then in verse 15 and 16, I think he's saying, you're rejecting God's way into the kingdom. You're trying to justify yourselves, but you're missing salvation. You're missing what God has for you. The grace of God at work in your life when you choose to worship things rather than me. And then 17 and 18, I think his point is, when you do that, you begin to compromise in more and more areas of your life. You begin to turn your back on the truth and on God's law. And you get more and more selfish. And you begin to say things like, in your minds maybe, not verbally, well, I can be selfish with money. And that leads to, I can be selfish with other things in my life. And God, what you say really doesn't matter that much. So if my marriage is tough, I will just walk out on it. Because I'm, it's okay if I'm selfish. You see, you begin to walk down that path, and pretty soon it affects every area of your life. And marriage is a great example of that, because that's a place where the Pharisees, see, were compromising they taught in their day that you could get divorced for any reason. If your wife burned the dinner, literally, they said this, you could write a certificate of divorce. If you saw another woman who was more attractive than your wife, you could write a certificate of divorce, and that meant you were divorced. For any and every reason, essentially, you could, you could have a divorce. And Jesus brings that up because he says, God never designed it that way. But you Pharisees, because you're lovers of money, you've begun to compromise and it's affecting everything and marriage is just an example. But isn't it a, an appropriate example for us today? I've had a number of people say to me as a pastor, well, I've really prayed about it and I think, I think it's okay if I go through with this divorce. Now, there are other passages where Jesus gives an exception uh, to when divorce is allowable if there's been marital unfaithfulness. And in 1 Corinthians, if an unbeliever walks away, there's freedom for the believer. Those are clear. But he, what he's saying here is that when you begin to compromise in how you handle money, it will begin to affect you. So you begin to say things like has been said to me, hey, I'm justified in, in doing this divorce. I think God looks on it as okay when there is no biblical grounds for it. You see, we begin to compromise in more and more areas when we let money be our God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, says, For the love of money is a root of all the evils. 
Literally, that's the translation. For the love of money is a root of all the evils. It doesn't cause all the evils, but it's a root of every evil if you choose to love money. That's a powerful statement. Money so easily can enslave us. Everything we have, our money, our things, are gifts from God. But it's important, Jesus says, that we look at them as merely gifts and that they have a purpose, that we be shrewd and thoughtful about our things, that we don't just live in a way that means we become more and more enslaved to them, but we live in a way in which we're thoughtfully and prayerfully saying, Lord, how do you want me to use this? You've given me this money. You've given me these things. How can I use them to further your kingdom? And if we'll be thoughtful and shrewd about what we have, God will bless us as we're faithful in those little things like money. He'll give us the greater riches that He longs to give us. Jesus is relentless, isn't He, in our lives? He's relentless because He so desperately wants a relationship with us that's pure and good and right. Not one in which we despise Him because we're more concerned about money than Him. And I know this is a hard message to hear. It's convicting. But I encourage you to take some time before the Lord and say, Lord, how do I need to change my perspective of things? And maybe you need to consciously, before Him, give everything you have to Him and say, Lord, it's yours. What do you want me to do with it as your steward? I encourage you to do that today. Take a hard look at how you deal with money. Are you faithful to Him? It's a little thing. But it leads to big things. Let's pray. Lord, how weak we are, how easily enslaved. Teach us, Lord, to use what we have to further your kingdom, to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth, to not hoard what we have, to not trust in what we have, to not look for our security in what we have, but to use all that we have to further your purposes. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.